And when you put these two immediate purposes together, the purpose of fellowship with each other and the purpose of fellowship with the Godhead, the ultimate purpose is realized in verse 4. And these things we write to you so that your joy may be full. Welcome to the Sunrise Pulpit. The Sunrise Pulpit is a ministry of Sunrise Bible Church and Pastor David Sturtz. Each week on the Sunrise Pulpit, we hear a portion of a sermon preached at Sunrise Bible Church and bring it to you. I'm your host, Stephen Berg. Do you have joy? Do you have happiness of soul? This week, Pastor David is going to show how the little New Testament letter of 1 John can give us that joy and happiness of soul. After an introduction with background material to the letter itself, Pastor David takes us right to the text of 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Let's listen in. As we dig into this passage and get ready to dig into this passage of Scripture this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question. Do you want to be a happier person? Do you want to be a happier person? Do you want to be a person whose joy is growing and even becoming complete and perfected? I think we all know the answer to that question. Most of us, if we were honest, would say that we want greater joy and we want more happiness. In fact, it's been my observation that most people are not actually happy with their lives. And not just because of the circumstances around them, many people are not even happy with themselves. Even more serious than the circumstances is that reality. Many of us lack full joy. I want to read the first four verses of this letter, and I want you to note carefully when we get to verse 4 what John says about joy and its relationship to what he's about to write. 1 John verse 1 in the first chapter. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare or we proclaim to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. If you're a Christian here this morning, a born-again Christian, this letter from the Apostle John is designed to bring you complete or full joy for your life. If you need real joy, full joy, you need to learn the truths that come from this book. And let me also say, even if you're not a Christian here this morning, this book will also teach you how to find that full joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the truths of this book are not easy to grasp. They're easy to understand, but to actually take hold of them and apply to your life, they take work and they take diligence. If you follow the truths of this letter, it may turn your life upside down, but maybe in the end, you will find that your life is finally the right side up 
when you have found real and true joy. This morning, I want to unpack these first four verses, this introduction to the book, the letter of 1 John, to you. So again, if you have your Bibles, look carefully at verses 1 through 3. Look carefully at verses 1 through 3. And if you look and you just let your eyes follow down through there, in nearly all of your translations, verse 2 is marked off with a dash or a parenthesis or a bracket. Verse 2 is very important, but the translators have rightly understood that there is an opening thought that John wants his readers to see, and that would include us now as well. There's a flow that starts in verse 1, and it reaches its pinnacle in verse number 3. If you actually look, there's only one main verb between verses 1 and verse 3, and that's seen in verse 3. Look at it with me. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. That word declare means proclaim or report. Now, what is it that John is declaring, proclaiming, or reporting? You go back to verse 1. It's what we've heard. It's what we've seen. It's what we've looked upon. It's what our hands have handled. And it becomes very clear that the report, the declaration, the proclamation that John is making is about a person. It's about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This letter centers around Jesus Christ. It focuses our eyes like a laser beam upon the Lord Jesus. The Apostle John wanted his readers to rightly understand who Jesus is. And as we shall see as we go through this letter, he wanted his readers to live rightly for this Jesus. And John is going to, in this letter, proclaim Jesus Christ. Just as a foretaste of this letter, John is going to tell us about our Lord's nature, about His works, about His love, and how we should respond to these things. But it's all centered on rightly understanding Jesus. I'm proclaiming to you, I'm declaring to you, I'm reporting to you about Jesus Christ. As we unpack this introduction, I want you to note with me John's descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are six of them in the first three verses. First, he tells us that Jesus Christ was, quote, from the beginning, that which is from the beginning. Now, of course, if you read that, you ask the question, the beginning of what? The beginning of what? Do we think about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry or the beginning of creation? What are we talking about? Well, take your Bibles, hold your place here, and turn over to the passage that we heard read for us in John chapter 1. Hold your place here in 1 John, turn to John 1. And here we're going to look at just the first couple of verses together. John 1, beginning in verse 1. If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably know these verses, at least nominally. Some of you, many of you have them even memorized. The scripture says this, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Now, it's interesting that just like 1 John, this book of the Bible begins in a very similar way. You have that phrase, in the beginning, showing up in both of them. And that makes sense. 
since the same guy who wrote both of these books, both of these letters. But here in John chapter 1, it is very clear that the beginning of the Word, which is another way of talking about Jesus, if you read down through the whole first chapter, that Jesus Christ, who is the Word of life, according to 1 John 1, 1, it is clear that the beginning that John had in mind here in John chapter 1 was far before there was a creation of the universe. John is speaking about the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ here in John 1. Before creation itself, Jesus existed. And Jesus was not made either. Because John says, nothing that was made was made without him. That would include himself, Jesus. Jesus Christ is an uncreated being, eternal, as we shall see in a moment. Now back in 1 John 1, when John says, that which was from the beginning, he likely had this idea in mind. Jesus Christ is the eternal being. We get a confirmation of that in 1 John 1 and verse 2. That life, referring to Jesus, was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested, shown to us. Jesus is the eternal life. He is an uncreated being. A pastor in the South years ago by the name of R.G. Lee described the ministry and life of Jesus and his eternality this way. He said, quote, Jesus was the only man who had a heavenly father but no heavenly mother, who had an earthly mother, but no earthly father, who was older than his mother, and who was as old as his father. Jesus is fully God, and thus eternal. Jesus is the eternal one. Note a a second description of Jesus Christ. He's not only eternal from the beginning. John says, Jesus is someone whom we heard. He heard, we could hear him, he spoke. This is an eternal being that spoke and we could hear him. I just uh, recently saw, many of you might have seen this, it made a small splash in our news here, that a new emperor of Japan has risen to the throne, Naruhito, made a little bit of news here. Probably the most important emperor who reigned in the recent past was Hirohito. He would have been two up the line from our current emperor of Japan. He was the emperor who reigned during all of World War II and actually after it, all the way into the 1980s. When the Japanese ended hostilities against the United States at the end of World War II, General Douglas MacArthur forced the emperor to go on the radio in Japan and to declare the end of the war. When Emperor Hirohito went on the radio, it was the first time that the overwhelming majority of Japanese citizens had ever heard his voice. Few had ever seen him, but even fewer had ever heard him speak. And he was a deity, a god of sorts in their worldview. Now when John says, we heard him, he doesn't mean in that emperor Hirohito mode, where we just heard him one time. The verb here indicates that this was something that they heard over and over and over again. John actually got to hear Jesus often. As you read through the Gospel of John, you will see that he heard Jesus laugh, cry, preach, groan, celebrate, and so on. This was no phantom being, John says. He's a real person. I heard him speak. 
We heard him speak. There were other witnesses. Here's a third description of Jesus Christ. John says, we have seen him with our eyes. We've seen him with our eyes. In the classic book, The Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes is the main character in this book. Dantes, in a crazy sort of way, comes to know where a great treasure was, a vast and great treasure, and he has doubts upon it, about it until he lays his eyes on it. And then he knew for certain it was real. John says, we saw the real treasure. We saw him with our eyes. Fourth description of Jesus. Notice verse 1 again. That which we have looked upon. What we have looked upon. If you say, what's the difference between seeing with our eyes and looked upon? Well, the word here probably has to do with looking intently. This was no mere passing glance. Like we today might have a spouse who says, look at this. And we glance up from our book or turn away for a moment from our TV. And we say, oh yes, that's nice, dear. And we go right back to what we're doing. And we haven't, we've seen it, but we haven't really deeply seen it, looked upon it. That's not the idea here. Jesus Christ was someone whom John had intently stared at. John just didn't see him from a distance. No, he paid careful attention to him and examined him thoroughly. We heard read for us earlier in John 1.14, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You can't just do that at a passing glance. John intently studied Jesus. Here's a fifth description Again in verse 1, and our hands have handled the word of life. That is to say, they touched him. When I think about this phrase, two incidents stick in my own mind concerning the Apostle John. The first is the scene when all the disciples were at the Passover, the last Passover before Christ was to be slain on the cross. And if you know anything about the Jewish Passover in that day, when the Jews would eat that meal, they would recline on their side. They didn't have chairs. They had long, big pillows and comfortable things. They would lay down and they would eat with their left hand while they were enjoying the meal. And they would sit around a low table enjoying that meal. And if you read the descriptions of that Passover, John, the apostle, was sitting to the left of Jesus. And so you would kind of recline at an angle and you'd have somebody else who was right here and then somebody else who was right here. And if you say, that's weird, it's just as weird as we sitting tightly at a table and we're touching shoulders, okay? That's just the way they ate. And, and they would sit next to each other. And, and I think about that phrase when John says, and our hands have handled concerning the words of life. John was right there. He could hear the man's heart beating. He could see him breathing. And he probably passed things to him. And they exchanged pleasantries. They, they hugged. They cried together. They rejoiced together. Our hands had handled concerning the word of life. I also think when I read this phrase, our hands have handled of that awesome scene where Jesus invited his disciples as he pulled up his shirt to sew the wound in his side and invited them to touch and to place their hands in the nail prints of his, both, of his hands and of his feet. John says, we touched the eternal life who was with the Father. There's a final description also seen in verse 1 of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the word of life. And what a beautiful description that is. Probably the idea here is that he is the word who is life. The term is in apposition to the word word. 
the word who is life. And this fits well with John's description of Jesus in his gospel. And the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. That's real life. Or John 5.27, as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. John 11.25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John 14.6, which we began with this morning, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the eternal life. He is the source of all life. Through him, all life has come into being. God spoke the worlds into existence And his speaking resounded through the voice of Jesus who commanded light to come from darkness and birds and plants and animals and people to be created out of nothing. Jesus is the one who is life. He is the source of all life. He is the source of eternal life. And he gives life to all who would receive it. As he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. No one else could say that but the one who was sent from the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at all six of these descriptions, he was from the beginning. We heard him. We saw him. We looked intently upon him. We handled him. And he is the eternal life. When you place them against the backdrop of the man Serinthius or any other early Gnostic teacher, you can see why John would start the letter this way. Jesus was not just a human who had the divine spirit come upon him. He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a special guy. He wasn't just a neat figure from human history. No, Jesus Christ was God come in the flesh. The God man, the theanthropic man who was with the father, but took upon himself human flesh. He became a human being and he lost none of his divine essence or nature. This was a powerful rejection of the early heresies that were swirling around the church of Ephesus. John says, no, Serinthius, no false teachers. You don't know who Jesus is. I do. I've seen him. I've looked at him. I've heard him. I've touched him. I know who he is. He is the being from the beginning and the life. But you know, this opening couple of verses speak to us today as well. John speaks to us that Jesus Christ is not just an idea. He was God come in the flesh. And John was an intimate eyewitness of Jesus. See, Christianity is not a philosophy, though it has philosophical implications. Christianity is not just a religious system of thought, though it is a religious system and it's highly developed. Christianity at its heart is a truth claim that is rooted in real space and time. It claims that God came in the flesh to die for our sins and to be raised again to show that his claim was valid. If Jesus Christ was simply an idea or a story, There is no reason for any of us to be here this morning. Sell the building, let's go home. But if Jesus Christ is the one who is the uncreated being from the beginning, who came in space and time, died and was risen again and has ascended to the right hand of the Father and will come back as our Lord and Judge, we have every reason to be here. Jesus Christ is not just an idea. He's a person, the God-man. 
These opening three verses give us credence and evidence to those claims. John was a man who saw Jesus. John was not a person any different than us. He was a man and he saw Jesus. It was not just him. He says, we saw him. There were 12 apostles plus thousands and thousands of others who did too. And we rely upon those apostolic witnesses today, even as they've recorded what they have seen and heard and looked upon and handled in the Word of God. They've told us what they saw. Jesus Christ as have coming and died and rose again and now ascended into heaven. So John begins with this description of Jesus, the eternal life from the beginning who came in the flesh. He proclaims him, he declares him, he reports him. But his reporting and his proclamation has a purpose. It isn't just news for the sake of news. It wasn't just to sell newspapers. It wasn't so that his little letter would become the hottest thing on the market. John has a purpose for why he wrote and why he proclaimed about Jesus Christ. And you can see that in verses 3 and 4. There is an immediate purpose to his writing and there's an ultimate purpose. The immediate purpose is seen in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that, so that, you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The immediate purpose of declaring Jesus Christ is for the purpose of fellowship, John says. Fellowship refers to something that is held in common. If you and your spouse are both on the deed of your house, you hold that house in common. You have fellowship in the deed of the house. Hopefully, if you have a spouse, you have more in common than just the deed of the house. But at least if you own one together, you've got at least that. That's fellowship, something you hold in common. Fellowship can be over something that you and someone else both enjoy. For instance, you might love tennis, and you have other people who love tennis. You have fellowship, you have something in common in your love of tennis. On the other hand, there are people who hate tennis, and you might find some people who also hate tennis. You have fellowship in what you hate, something held in common. The point is that when John writes this, he was dealing with a group of people that had seen the bonds of their fellowship in local churches stretched and even broke. And were broke because they had lost their focus and right understanding of who Jesus was. Because really, what unites us here at Sunrise Bible Church is not me, it's not this building, it's not the beautiful space that we inhabit here. What unites us at Sunrise Bible Church is that we proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the center of everything that we are. If you forget who he is, or you get him wrong, our fellowship begins to break up and go away. John had experienced that. He was saying in this book, look, there are people who have left us because they didn't rightly understand the person of Jesus. John's writing to give encouragement to people who watched friends leave because they didn't get Jesus right. John is concerned about them. John is saying, if, if we get the proclamation of Jesus right, we have something in common, something that trumps everything else, that's greater than everything else. 
We who are in Jesus Christ have him in common. If you are in Christ Jesus and you agree with and affirm what John proclaims, you have fellowship with us here. And it is sweet. In fact, I would say it's the greatest thing you can ever have in common. I was talking to a couple of ladies in our church the other day, and they described our church as a family. And one of them said, it's like having a whole new family. And they did not say that with discouragement. They said that with gladness of heart. Truthfully, I can say it is a better family in Christ Jesus. We have differences, but we all come around the same Lord and we proclaim him. And there is a holy sweetness that comes from that that is greater than any other type of fellowship you can have. I have family who are Christians. That family, our time together is sweet, not just because they're brothers and sisters or aunts and uncles, but because we share a common bond in Jesus. I have other family who I would say are, I'm, I'm good friends with, but we don't share that common bond in Jesus. I enjoy time with them, but it's not the same. It is not the same. There's a holy sweetness that comes in the family of Jesus Christ. And even if you have no family who knows Christ Jesus, that lady who said that was absolutely right. You have a new family here. You not only have a new family, you have a new father. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, John says. Our fellowship is not just with us, but with God and with Jesus. You see, the family that exists in Christ Jesus is not just an earthly family, it is a heavenly one. It is not just that we get along here, it is a fellowship that extends, it's something in common that extends beyond time and space to the throne room of heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that also is a holy, sweet fellowship. For we are with the Father and with Jesus in prayer and in communion. And one day, God will be in fellowship with us through Jesus when He comes and dwells among us again. Friends, if you don't have that type of fellowship with the Father, if you don't know Him through Jesus Christ, this letter will help you to understand what that means. So if you come here today and you're not a born-again Christian or you don't understand Christianity, you keep coming back because this letter is going to tell you what it is to have true fellowship with God and Christ and then fellowship with other Christ lovers. Now, when you put these two immediate purposes together, the purpose of fellowship with each other and the purpose of fellowship with the Godhead, the ultimate purpose is realized in verse 4. And these things we write to you so that your joy may be full. It is a shared joy, a joy that spills over one to another, that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ and our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you experience that kind of joy in full fellowship with each other as born-again Christians and with God, I can tell you by experience, it is the best kind of joy. Sometimes it seems like it's fleeting. If you've been a Christian for a while, you know there are those times in which you are in right fellowship with God and you are in right fellowship with the believers around you. And for a moment, you can almost hear the angels singing because the joy of heaven has come down upon your soul. It's a foretaste of the promise of what is to come. If you know nothing of what that is like, 
Keep coming back. And this letter will tell you how to get there. Because we're going to find out that your sins can be forgiven in Jesus. That you have a new home because of Jesus. You have a new hope because of Jesus. You have promises forever because of Jesus. John says, I'm going to report. I'm going to declare. I'm going to proclaim who Jesus is. Yes, there are people who have left us. But let me tell you what we have. We have a common bond in Jesus. You have just heard a portion of a sermon entitled Complete Joy, preached by Pastor David Sturtz at Sunrise Bible Church in May of 2019. If you would like to hear the rest of that sermon, you can find it at sunrisebiblechurch.org. There you will find a whole library of sermons from the Sunrise Pulpit. Thank you for tuning in to the Sunrise Pulpit. We hope you will join us next week as we explore God's Word together.